Good morning, First Baptist Church. Uh, it's a real joy to be here to worship our God with you. Um, the church that I serve, New Hope Fellowship in, uh, in Tarrytown in Westchester County, uh, we pray for you as a congregation, and we know that you've prayed for us, and we're very grateful for that. Um, your pastor is a man who I admire greatly, and I'm very thankful to him and to you for the invitation to come and, and preach God's word to you. And so before we jump into God's word, I want to invite you to pray with me once again and ask for the help we need as we, as we look into his infinitely precious and valuable and relevant word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you'd give us eyes to see whatever it is that you have for us to see in your word today. We ask that you would wipe away the distractions that we brought in here with us this morning. We ask that you would get rid of any blindness that we have to your truth. We ask that you would reveal to us your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would rescue those who have wandered and bring them back home to you. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to open up a Bible, if you have one, to Psalm 73, verse 25. Psalm 73, verse 25. We're going to be looking at this psalm this morning, but we're going to start kind of in the middle, uh, towards the end, in verse 25. The psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What, what a declaration of love this is. What a, what a declaration of singular devotion to God. He, he's saying, you are all I have and you're all I want. These are the words of Asaph, a man who knew God and he knew that God is good. But as we read the rest of this psalm, we'll find that Asaph was not always so sure. We find that in the past, his faith was threatened. And he found himself wondering, is God really good? Is God worth trusting? Is he worth obeying? Is God worth it? That's the question that this psalm drives us to ask with the psalmist, honestly and thoughtfully, is God worth it? In other words, does trusting and obeying God really make sense? Does it pay off? After all, a life of faithful devotion to the Lord is not always easy. It can feel hard at times. Wouldn't life be easier if I stopped caring about his commands? Have you ever asked yourself questions like that? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you ever have doubts about him? About, about whether or not it makes sense to keep following him? If so, if so, you're in decent company. Asaph shared those doubts at times in his life. And Asaph wrote scripture, so that's a pretty high standard. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I, wonder, I wonder why. I wonder if it might be that you yourself wonder, is Jesus really worth, does he deserve my devotion, my trust? Do you ever wonder, is he worth it? 
Well, this writer did wonder, and he did not ignore those doubts. He didn't ignore those questions. Instead, he confronted them head on. And it's through the process of confronting them, wrestling with them, as it were, that he finally concluded, yes, yes, God is worth it. In fact, no other pursuit, no other person, no other purpose in this world even comes close to comparing to him. Nothing else deserves my lifelong devotion and trust. That's where the psalmist landed, but we need to see how he got there. So that when we find ourselves doubting, we can land there too. And let's honestly ask that question with them, is God worth it? And you know, this is the perfect place for us to ask that question. In this gathering of the church, and we'll see why this is the perfect place to ask that question in just a little while. Over the course of this psalm, the psalmist goes through a few different phases, and those phases will serve as the headings for this message. So if you're taking notes, here, here are those headings. First of all, the psalmist goes through a, a, a stage of, of comparing and complaining. And then he starts regretting and rethinking. And then finally, he starts realizing and repenting. So he goes from comparing and complaining to regretting and rethinking, and finally realizes and repents. So let's start at the beginning and let's walk through the psalm. Again, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up because you'll find it helpful to see the, 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 the flow of thought from verse 1 all the way down through as we walk through it, hitting on certain points as we go along. So how does this psalmist compare and complain? The, the, the psalm actually starts with another confident declaration. Look at verse 1. It says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In other words, God is good to his people. But again, there was a point when the author wondered if that were really true. And so he tells us that story, beginning in verse 2. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He, he had nearly lost his faith in God. He had nearly stumbled, fallen into complete and total unbelief. For, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Notice what's happening here. He, he started comparing his life with others, and he began to envy what he saw. Namely, the prosperity of the wicked. The prosperity of the wicked. The Hebrew word there for prosperity is shalom. Many of us are familiar with that word. We've heard that word, shalom. But usually we, we might think that the word shalom means peace. That's usually how it's translated in the Bible. Peace. Here it's translated prosperity. Now both peace and prosperity, they, they capture certain aspects of what that word shalom means. But the word shalom is a, is a rich word. It's a multifaceted word. It means more than just peace or prosperity. It means something like completeness or wholeness to be well in every way. We need a lot of English words just to capture the meaning of that one Hebrew word. But, but get this, the psalmist is looking at people whom, people whom he classifies as wicked because they dismiss God's commandments, they dismiss God himself, they lived as if God did not exist, and yet, he says, their, li their lives seem so full. They are prospering. He says they have shalom. How could this be? They ignore God. They, they, they reject God. And yet they have shalom. 
What does shalom look like to Asaph? We see it in the verses that follow as he begins to describe the lives of these quote-unquote wicked people. He says, they live pain-free lives, plus they are well-fed. Verse 4 says, they're fat. The, the Christian Standard Bible calls them well-fed. The ESV says they're fat, which, which in the ancient world was a compliment, by the way. If you live in a society where everyone's going hungry, if you're fat and you're well-fed, you are favored. You're fortunate. Oh, Lord, how are these people who reject you living so well? Their lives are full. They are trouble-free. They have everything. And look, and look, rather than make them grateful, it only makes them more arrogant. Verse 6 says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. In other words, they flaunt their sin like jewelry on a, on a red carpet. They, they scoff, verse 8 says, and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They're open in their abusive language and threats. They set their mouths against the heavens, verse 9 says, which could also be translated, they, they talk as if, they rule the heavens. They, they, they walk and talk as if they are God. They walk and talk with arrogant swagger. Now, now this image of unjust, self-seeking people seems to have consumed the mind of the psalmist. He, he's describing them in such detail. He, he could probably think of names to go along with these descriptions. He could probably come up with real examples. It's possible Maybe likely that he was hurt by some of these people. He was suffering because of some of their actions and attitudes. I wonder if any faces come to mind for you as we describe the quote-unquote wicked here. Is there anyone who you know who fits this description? Arrogant, self-seeking, manipulative, hurtful. Anyone you know personally or maybe, maybe just people you know via media, you hear about them. Famous people who live and seem to act like this. I wonder, do you ever compare your lives to theirs, like the psalmist did? And do you ever find yourself envying them? Comparison can be dangerous, no? You've heard it said that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison so often leads to envy. Eventually it leads to what the Bible calls covetousness. And perhaps it goes even further than covetousness. But notice with me two other things that, that, that comparing does in the psalmist's life. For one thing, comparison tends to exaggerate how good others have it. Here's what I mean. He says, they're living pain-free lives, angst-free lives. They've got no disappointments. They've got no problems. Their lives are perfect, the psalmist seems to imply. And we might ask, really, is that true? No problems at all. See, the fact is that life for those who reject God is never really as attractive as their lifestyle may seem to indicate. But from the outside, appearances can be deceiving. And often when we do compare our lives to the lives of others, we seem to ignore all of their troubles. We seem to focus exclusively on what they have that we wish we had, and we exaggerate how good they have it. But comparing also does more. It, it tends to warp your perspective on what really matters. 
For instance, look at what the psalmist is envying. He summarizes it for us in verse 12. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. They're always at ease and they're increasing in riches. So what is he, what is he envying here? It's comfort and wealth, ease and money. Now, if we knew a little bit about Asaph, we could probably surmise that at other times in his life, he would probably have said, those things are really not what life is about. He was a wise man. He was a godly man. And he would have said, wealth and ease are not what life ultimately is about. They're not really that important. But now as he finds himself gazing at these people, comparing his lives to theirs, envying what they have, he's begun to long, long for something that at another point in life he would have said, no, that's not really what life is about. But now it's what life is about to him. He wants it badly. Can you relate to that? You relate to that? Each year, Amazon.com sends out a colorful holiday kids catalog. If you have kids and you've ever bought anything from Amazon, you may have del- had one of these delivered to your apartment or your home. They, it, it, it's a beautiful little catalog. When I see it first, I usually throw it in the trash as soon as I can because I'm, I'm, I'm a bad father in a sense, but I'm also trying to protect my family because I know what happens. My smallest kids will get their hands on that catalog and, and it's it looks like a, a beautiful little children's book, but it's really just aimed at selling them stuff, right? Or selling me stuff. And, and so they go through it and they start circling all the things that they want for Christmas. And, and it's October still. They're already doing this. This just happened last week. They're circling. They're, they have a paper out with listing all the things that they want. And they say, Dad, we know you're not going to get us all these things, but we just want to put down all the things we want. And then you decide what you want to give us. All the things they didn't know they needed they now realize they need because they gazed at them for a while in color in this catalog. And perhaps you can relate to that too. I certainly can. Maybe it's not a catalog. Maybe it's just walking through life. I have visited places that I will never afford to live. And as I looked around at the homes and the cars and the lives, what I cared about started to change. I started to realize that I really wanted those things that before I'd gotten there, they didn't matter to me. All of a sudden now they did when I started to gaze at them. And I even started thinking, why, why do these folks have so much? How about me? How about us? You see how easily we stumble from comparison into envious complaining. It can happen quickly. It can happen in as much time as it takes to scroll through someone's Instagram. And you begin to see their perfect family and their perfect vacation and their perfect body. And you start to think, why them? How about me? I'd like to have that vacation. I'd like to live like that. And of course, we're exaggerating how good they have it. And, and our attitude on what matters is changing in, in, in the moment. And we find ourselves growing less and less happy. I, I read about a study recently that said that, it was out of King's University in England, it said that watching, you know HGTV? HGTV? It says that watching, HG, they found that watching HGTV leads to um, uh, higher rates of depression, sadness, anxiety. And I thought, that, 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 that confirms what I would have expected. <laughs> no, no, no. That confirms what I have experienced. Because as we look at what others have and gaze and focus, and we begin to complain and compare and envy, 
It doesn't end there, though. The psalmist goes from comparing and complaining. He starts to regret and rethink. He starts regretting and rethinking. That's our second thing we're looking at today. Look at verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He says, Lord, I've sought to live in purity before you. I've sought to follow your commandments. And all the day, all I've experienced is rebuke and suffering. Comparison can cause you to regret your choices and rethink your life. You look at your friend who is what you would like to have. Maybe, let's say, let's say you're single and you'd like to be married and your friend is married. Or your friend is more successful than you. Or maybe it's not, maybe your friend is just more liked than you are. Or perhaps you see a stranger on social media who looks happier and wealthier and more successful and you begin to think, maybe I should have made some different choices in life. Maybe I could have had what they had if I had just chosen a different route. I knew I shouldn't have chosen that major. I knew I shouldn't have done this. I knew I shouldn't have spent all my life following Jesus. You see, this is what happens in the psalmist's experience. Comparing led the psalmist to question his very commitment to God. Not just his career choices. Not just his his choice in a spouse. But he began to question the very foundation that his life was built on, his relationship to God. And he wondered, what's the point of trusting and obeying him if, if my life isn't even as good as those who ignore him? Maybe I've made a horrible mistake. It's from this place of regretting and rethinking that we see the psalmist transition. Really, it's not even a, a transition as much as it's a jolt, a, a change, a, 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 a tremendously momentous change. He begins realizing and repenting realizing and repenting, he reaches a turning point and he begins to realize that his thinking has been all wrong all along and he repents. That means he he changes his mind. He changes his direction. He was way off, he says, until, until, look at verse 17. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. It's a moment of realization. But notice his circumstances had not changed. Only his focus changed. His eyes turned away from the the temporary and toward the eternal. He says, I saw their end. You see, he stopped looking at the the present experience of the people that he envied, and he looked at where they were headed. And he finally saw that what he was envying was not, in fact, shalom. Not true shalom. It's certainly true that some who dismiss God may find that they experience influence and money and comfort in this world. But the psalmist says to the Lord in verse 18, truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. It's a callback to verse 2 where the psalmist said that, that I almost stumbled, my feet almost slipped into disbelief. Now he's saying, no, it's, it's those who dismiss God reject him and ignore him, they are the ones who are in a slippery place. They are on the precipice. You make them fall to ruin, he says. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. 
Oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He's saying, I realize now that no matter what present abundance one enjoys, everyone who rejects God will ultimately experience destruction. It's a sober moment of realization. He's saying whatever makes one's life enviable, if you dismiss God and live as if he is not real, whatever makes your life enviable now will disappear like a dream. Like a dream you can't remember in the morning. We've all had that experience, right? Wake up after a wonderful dream and somehow can't recall what it was. And maybe, maybe some details linger, but the more you try to grab onto it, it just fades away and it's gone forever. So is the quote-unquote shalom that this man was envying, the counterfeit shalom, the prosperity of the wicked. This means, for one thing, that there will be justice in this world. Genesis 18 asks the question, will not the judge of the earth do what is just? And Asaph realized that the answer is yes, he will do what is just. And this realization led Asaph to repent, to change his thinking. Verse 21, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart and I was brutish, I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In other words, I, I, was, I was discouraged as I looked at my own life and, and the pain that I was experiencing, the disappointment and the loss and the trouble. And I looked at other people that seemed to have it so good. I was discouraged by that. And I grew resentful. And I responded like an idiot, Lord. He says, I was, I was stupid, Lord. Until, until I entered your sanctuary and I came to my senses. I was blind, distracted, and dumb until I entered your sanctuary and I came to my senses. And I would like us to consider for a moment what it means when he says, I entered your sanctuary. I mentioned at the outset that this worship service, that, that this gathering is the perfect place to ask the question, is God worth it? And here's why this is the perfect place. Because it was in the process of worship that the psalmist came to his senses. You see, the sanctuary of God was the place of God's presence. At the time when the psalm was written, God's people met him. His presence was known and felt. And they worshipped him at the tabernacle. The tabernacle. This was before the temple had been erected. The tabernacle was a large tent of gathering. It was a holy place, a holy place where God and his people would meet. Now, for us as New Testament believers, there's no physical tabernacle or temple, is there? But we do gather to hear and read and sing, don't we? It's what you have gathered and I have gathered with you to do today. And although the gathering of God's people looks different now than it would have then, nevertheless, as it was for Asaph, gathered worship is where we encounter God's presence Together. Gathered worship is where together we are reminded that God is good, that He is worth obeying and entrusting with our lives. It's where we, we can bring our doubts, and I hope you do that. If not, I wonder what you are doing with your doubts. You can bring them. You ever walk into a worship service discouraged and questioning? And, and the very experience of gathering with God's people, singing with them, 
and praying for the world and for one another and for the church with them. And hearing God's word declare to you, have you ever walked out encouraged and less burdened than when you walked in? Have you ever walked out more sure of the gospel and more sure that God is worth it than when you walked in? If so, that's no coincidence. That's part of the reason that God has given us this gift of gathered worship. As you hear others sing of God's goodness and faithfulness, as you lift up requests and you praise with your brothers and sisters, as you hear his promises declared in the preaching of his word, as you recite the creeds together, gathered worship is where together our minds can be renewed and our doubts can be settled. But, but, but here, here's the thing. What makes this gathering matter, what makes, the, the, what makes this the very best place to ask that question, is God worth it, is not merely the presence of these people around you or even the activities that we engage in when we're here, although all of that matters. It matters deeply. But as much as all that matters, what makes this the sanctuary is the presence of God himself. It's what made the tabernacle special. The tabernacle was a a unique place, a beautiful space, as was the temple. But what made it special was not as that as much as it was the very presence of God there. It's what makes this place special. And I don't even mean this room, frankly, as beautiful as this room is. I mean this gathering. You could be meeting on, on the subway platform on 72nd Street, or you could be meeting out in the park. But when you enter the sanctuary of God's presence with his people, wherever that is, he promises to be there in a special way, in a potent way, present there with power to reorient and to reawaken us to what is true shalom. In the holy tabernacle that Asaph was familiar with, he may have been very well familiar with that tabernacle because he may very well have served there as a priest. But in that tabernacle, which was a holy place, there was a a holiest place within the holy place. There was an innermost chamber wherein were kept the Ark of the Covenant, the two tablets of the law of Moses, with God's law etched by his finger in those stone tablets. There was an altar of sacrifice in that holiest of holy places where animal offerings were made. There was a mercy seat in that holiest of holy places where blood was sprinkled once a year on the day of atonement, the blood of an animal sacrifice. So, and, and all of those things, all of them from the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets, the mercy seat, the altar, all of it, all of it, these were all signs of God's covenant promises and his covenant curses. They, they were reminders to God's people of his law and his grace. His law was there in those, in those etched tablets. And his grace was there in the altar and in the mercy seat as, he, as people would, would, would be reminded through the sacrifices that yes, we are sinners. We are the quote unquote wicked who have dismissed and rejected God time and again. And yet with him in his presence, we find forgiveness. God forgives. He cleanses. 
he welcomes. That's what Asaph encountered in the sanctuary. He encountered God himself and the reminders of God's law and God's grace. And it's what we encounter when we gather as God's people. We don't offer blood sacrifices, but we do celebrate the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that atoned for the sins of everyone who believes in him. Yes, even the quote-unquote wicked, a category into which all of us fall. It's in the gathering of his people when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we remember his body offered up and his blood spilled to forgive and cleanse us from our sin. Cleanse us so that although, yes, in and of ourselves, we are the wicked, he has made us pure. In Christ, we've been cleansed. We have been declared righteous. It's in the gathering of God's people that we encounter the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's where we're confronted with the mercy and majesty of Jesus. It's where through prayer and preaching and singing and everything that happens through the ordinances, we gaze at the Lord. We gaze at the Lord. We stop gazing at everything else that perhaps has been distracting us. The things that we found ourselves longing for. No, we come here and we gaze at the Lord who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are confronted with the worth of Jesus. And now we can, we can approach the presence of God without being destroyed because we've been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Gathered worship is where we are together reminded that Christ died in our place to atone for our sin and our failures. Like I said, it's the only way we could approach the presence of God and not be destroyed. We don't deserve any of what we have any more than the quote-unquote wicked do. We're not more entitled than they are to anything from God. It's all grace upon grace. These are some of the realities that we're confronted with in the presence of God. Gathered worship is where together we gaze on his promises and we sing of his mighty works. It's where we're confronted with reality, the glorious reality of who God is. Gathered worship is where we remember together and declare, yes, God is worth it. In the sanctuary, this man was confronted with the infinite value and worth of knowing God personally through, through an unbreakable covenant bond. And, and it's interesting to note that when he was comparing his lives to those who dismiss God and reject God, he, he named many things that they had that he wanted. He listed many things. They got comfort, they got ease, they're well-fed. 
But now, when he entered the sanctuary and he came to his senses, he doesn't, notice this, he does not name any of the things that God has given him. He could have. He could have said, no, 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 no. I know God and God has given me a a family and a home and, and he's given me health. He could have maybe listed those things. But he doesn't. Instead, he just keeps saying, I have God. I have God. Notice as you read through the psalm, how many times he says, you, you, you. So that even as he suffers and it hurts, he can say, verse 23, I'm with you. You hold my hand. Verse 24, you guide me. And when I die, you'll receive me. Verse 26, you are my portion forever. When God's people entered the promised land, each tribe was given a portion of land. That portion of land was significant. It, 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 had to, it, it gave them a, a sense of identity. We are a people with, with property, with a land that cannot be taken away from us. It, is, it was ours. Here Asaph This is the very thing that's been given to me to prove to me that I am cared for, that I matter to God, that he is good, is that I get God himself. So if you found yourself asking, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm talking to you, if you, if you have found yourself asking, is God worth it? And maybe you haven't found yourself asking those questions. And if you haven't, maybe one day you will. The, Asaph wasn't asking that question. He, he was confident of God's goodness until he wasn't. And that may very well be the case for us. But know this, what you have in Jesus is real and it's worth more than all the world and it is permanent. Verse 27 of Psalm 73, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. It is shalom to be near God. Those who are far from you shall perish. All of the abundance experienced in this world apart from God will come to an end. So this means that if you have not come to trust and submit to this God through faith by believing in Jesus Christ, please, please consider Asaph's observations. We're being told constantly by the world, we're being told by many, many voices what is valuable, what matters, what you should be chasing, what you should be working harder for, what you should really be caring about and preparing for in this life. We're being told what shalom looks like all the time. But if the good that you are chasing and and banking on is temporary, you're being misled. You're being sold a phony shalom. It's why Jesus once asked, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? The whole world, your soul. And he says, it's not worth it. But what God offers you in Christ is lasting. If you trust in him. Yes, there will be suffering, no doubt. And there will be pain. And there will be doubts along the way. But finally, you will testify, like the psalmist, that it was all worth it, that God is worth it. And this raises a a vital question for us that we'll end with, one that the psalmist really had to wrestle with. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
You have entrusted your life to God, and you're a child of God. I want to ask you, what is it that you really want from God? What do you want from him? Is it him, or is it the things that he can give you if he chooses to? Is, is he what you're after? His love, his acceptance, his presence with you. Because if, if those are the things you're after, guess what? He, he promised you to all that. You are guaranteed all of that in Christ. But if you're after something else, something that he might give you if he wants to, like wealth or, or, or approval or, or the other hundreds of things that people spend their lives, that billions of people spend their lives chasing, you have to ask yourself the question, what, what if God says no? And says, no, I'm, I'm going to withhold approval human approval from it. I'm going to withhold the job you want. I'm going to withhold the promotion. I'm going to withhold the person that you desire to be with so much. Or, or I might even take away some of the things that I've given you in the past. I might even take them away from you and it's going to hurt. If he chooses to say no to those deepest longings, will he still be worth it to you? Will he still be worth it? Asaph had to be honest with himself, and we have to be honest with ourselves too. He finally declared, we started with it in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He realized that God himself is better than what this world has to offer. Anything this world has to offer. In fact, he says, who have I in heaven besides you? Not only are you better, God, than everything this world has to offer, God is better than anything that heaven has to offer. He is the best of what heaven has to offer. When you think about an eternity in God's presence, with God, in your, in your renewed body, we, 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 we declare together that we believe, we believe in the resurrection of the body. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the body. As you think about what life will look like in the presence of God forever, what do you long for most? When I think about that reality, I often think, wow, Lord, there's going to be no more suffering. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more loss. There's going to be no more sin in me or in anyone around me. Those are the things I find myself longing for. But Asaph goes deeper. He says, no, the best of what heaven has to offer is actually the presence of God himself. To use the words of Psalm 16, in your very presence there is fullness of joy. In the presence, it is, it is the very presence and nearness of God that is true and lasting shalom. But sin blinds us to that right now, right? And we lose perspective on that. And that's why we need time in the sanctuary. We need time in the sanctuary. Whether it's approaching God alone in the quiet place, you need that. Times of solitude with God. But I'm encouraging today to prioritize and to look forward to and to engage preparedly and eagerly in the gathering of God's people. Because we need more time in the sanctuary. Because there, there's lots of, of um, anti-sanctuaries out there. There are lots of voices that are telling us, they're selling us a phony shalom. When we come in here, we gather together, we find the antidote to dissatisfaction and envy. It's in the sanctuary where you see what is true and timeless, what is real shalom. Please pray with me. Our God, we confess how easily we are distracted, how easily we grow complaining, how easily we compare ourselves to others. And 
we confess, Lord, that, that, that even if we have never experienced this, we may very well in the future wonder, is it worth knowing and following God? We ask, we ask that you would protect us from those doubts. And when they come, we ask that you would, we ask that you would eviscerate those doubts. And that you would do so with the prescribed means of your word and prayer and the gathering of your people and your ordinances. We pray that, that you would give us a desire to engage in, the, in, in, in worship in such a way that we would walk out. <laughs> we would walk out looking at ourselves and at the world more realistically than when we walked in. We ask this in your name. Amen.